Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before we begin today, I want to remind you that there's a website associated with this uh, particular show. It's called wealthformula.com. Go and check that out for various resources. Also, if you're interested in potentially um, joining our, our small group and our community online, uh, it starts with a course. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Check that out. There's a course uh, that is uh, uh, on some of the basics of personal finance. And then uh, that sort of leads into this group that we call Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network is, uh, you know, an online, not only online, but also a Zoom, an online community. We have a Facebook group. We have a Zoom meeting every other Wednesday. And uh, anyway, people, I think, get a lot of benefit from it. It also uh, allows me to uh, speak with greater candor on issues that I know um, some of you would like to hear. But unfortunately, in public, I can't do that. So check that out, wealthformularoadmap.com. As for today, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, something that we, you know, we talk about a fair amount there, you know, uh, which is the role of uh, potentially a permanent life insurance in a portfolio. You know, right now there's a, uh, you know, there's a significant amount of distress in, in the investor world right now, right? It's it's not just you and it's not just me. It's, there's a lot of distress out there and with inflation and interest rates climbing quickly, it has left equity and real estate markets in shambles. And you know what? We'll get through this. We will. And while I encourage you to fight against the fear of investing so that you take advantage of any oncoming blood in the streets, I understand if you are reluctant. I totally get it. That is sort of, you know, the right evolutionary reaction to have have uh, to danger is, you know, is not to run right into it. Right. But but anyway, you, we've talked about this before. You have to try to change your mindset a little bit. Um, we've had tough times in American history, in American economic history, that is. And uh, the Great Depression of the 30s, uh, 1930s, was a period of extreme economic hardship and uncertainty. And that started off with a stock market crash and uh, what's called Black Tuesday, October 29th. Dow Jones Industrial Average lost about 12% of its value that day, and the crash continued into the following weeks. And by mid-November 1929, the market had lost over $30 billion in value, which is approximately $400 billion in today's terms. And that loss of wealth led to reduced consumer spending and investment, which in turn led to job losses and business closures. It was a vicious cycle that ultimately ended up being called the Great Depression. Now, I should point out, though, that it wasn't just stocks. Real estate is a correlated asset and real estate prices fell significantly during the Great Depression as well. People weren't able to afford to keep their homes or buy new ones and that led to a surplus of available properties and a corresponding drop in prices. However, what's interesting, and I think this is something to think about today, the life insurance companies displayed a surprising level of resilience even during the Great Depression. And while it was a challenging time for these companies, as it was for the entire economy, they weathered the storm better than many other types of businesses. And for this reason, an entire generation of individuals put a premium on permanent life insurance as an investment. It was all they had once the dust of the depression had settled. Nevertheless, the next generation of Americans forgot 
They forgot about the depression, the value of permanent life insurance. It sounded boring. Uh, Even though it had played a significant role in their parents' survival, the depression was out of sight and out of mind. And even with insurance strategies that significantly increased investor returns, financial advisors focused on their personal AUM and they continue to treat it like a red-headed stepchild. As you may know, I actually am a big advocate of permanent life insurance, specifically overfunded type policies such as wealth formula banking and what we call wealth accelerator. Now, I should point out that I wasn't always that way. I mean, I I didn't know because when I left residency training and tried to learn a little bit about what I was supposed to do, everybody told me that I wasn't supposed to buy permanent life insurance. They said, don't buy it. Buy, take term, invest, invest the rest. And I didn't even know what that meant, but I said, okay, sounds good. And so it wasn't until I, I realized that a bunch of you know rich people around me were buying permanent life insurance that I realized, you know what, there's something else to this. Fast forward to where we are now. These policies, they've been a source of ongoing profitability and stability for me. Like many of you, my portfolio has been hit by everything that's ensued here. But at least I know I've got this. And I, at least I know if something happened to me, my kids would be taken care of as well. Even in times where my portfolio is taking such a beating, I can count on the insurance portion of my net worth, which is actually very very, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to have, you know, it's a, it's funny. It's when it's exciting times, right? Like insurance is really boring. And when things go really south, it's like, oh, thank goodness for boring. And anyway, so I thought about this a lot last week and decided to bring it back uh, on, on your radar. So I invited our insurance partners back to the show. If you haven't yet secured life insurance, permanent life insurance is part of your portfolio. Make sure to listen to this uh, week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, the interview with Rod and Brennan when we come back from these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guests on Wealth Formula Podcast are well-known uh, to this group. Uh, they are the Wealth Formula Banking folks uh, named uh, Rod Zabriski, and we also have Brennan. Brennan, uh, you haven't been on the show before, though, have you? It's usually Christian. Yeah, I think, man, I'm trying to think. Did we do one episode before? Rod, or am I thinking of a webinar we did? Maybe yeah, was- we've done some stuff, and yeah, Brennan's joined us at some of the meetups and stuff, so uh, he's been around. Okay, Not the podcast, though. No, no, no. Yeah, I know. I've definitely, uh, we've seen you around and stuff at the uh, meetups and that kind of thing. But anyway, welcome, welcome to uh, Wealth Formula Podcast again, guys. And it's uh, happy summer to you. As you could tell, uh, if you are watching this on video, I am extraordinarily informal today. This got back from a kickboxing uh, little exercise morning here and uh, got the Wealth Formula hat on instead of trying to, you know, trying to look nice for people. So repping the uh, brand. I, I, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, 
So, guys, I'm, I'm glad you made it on. And, you know, I was thinking about uh, this show over the last few weeks because it's like, you know, we've got we've got some rough waters on the investor side. And it made me start to think about, well, you know, where where do you deploy in times like these? Because there's always places to deploy capital and that kind of thing. And the obvious one to me uh, seemed to be, uh, you know, something like what, what you guys are doing with Wealth Formula Banking and and, um, you know, various permanent insurance things. And so I thought, let's back up. Let's tell the story here because this is a historical. Uh, this is a this is something that is uh, that has been an issue throughout history where mm-hmm. people have fallen back on to the permanent life insurance thing. So let's talk first. Let's back up way back up. How did the concept of permanent life insurance come into existence in the first place? And what is it? That's the other thing. Sure. Yeah. So I can, I can answer that one. Life insurance. Uh, I mean, as it was originally, you know, conceived was what's called annual renewable term. And all that means is if I pay my premium, if I die this year, uh, my, my insurance pays out. If I don't die this year, then next year they'll, they'll bill me again and I'll pay a little bit more. Cause as I get older, the cost gets higher, the, the statistical statistically, I'm more likely to die. And so they'll pay me, they'll charge me more for the insurance. Is this like, is like, is this American stuff that you're talking about? Or is this like going back to, you know, medieval European history and that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, if, if, I mean, I I think it even goes back to the middle East, right? Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. uh, So, and it's just pooling risk, right? Like, like buddies get together and say, Hey, I don't think I'm going to die, but if I die, you know, I'd like to have something for my family and and everyone else agrees. And so they say, well, let's all pony up, you know, a little bit. And, and then if any of us dies this year, then, then, you know, that, that money goes to that family. So it's right? sort of like captive insurance. <laughs> I mean, it's captive. Yeah. It's, it's like self-insuring, but I don't yeah. want to self-insure. I want to pull it with, with a few. <laughs> right, right, so right. then the insurance companies, the way they are now, it's just like millions of people pooling together and saying, Hey, I don't think I'm going to die, but just in case, you know, here, here you go. Right. So, so of course it has evolved over the years. And so, um, Tell, talk us a little bit about that over the years yeah, in terms of policy structure and benefits and all that. And, you know, at what point, um, at what point did the concept of term insurance come up and what, mm-hmm. and what you know, just in, in general? Sure. So that model, it works great for a little while. If you're in your 30s and, and you say, well, I need a, a million bucks of insurance and I pay whatever, my 300 bucks uh, for that, then that's great. But the older you get and that million bucks of insurance is going to cost more and more. You get into your 70s and 80s and it could be a, a hundred grand of, in, of of a premium because there's only 10 of you left. Yeah. Right. Right. In the pool or whatever. Yeah. So uh, at some point you start asking yourself, is it worth me putting, am I just going to end up putting more, more than a million dollars into this thing before I die and get any kind of benefit back out? Right. So that's where permanent life insurance was conceived, where they said, okay, what if instead the, when we start with the 30 year old, they just put in a lot more money into the policy than they have to just from the, for the pure cost of insurance. Right. So instead of the 300 bucks, it's 3000 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but as long as they'll put in that $3,000 every year for, for the rest of their life, then we can build up this underlying cash value so that later on in, you know, when he, when he gets into his 60s, 70s, 80s, there's this, uh, additional pool of money that's going to help not only cover the cost, but there's growth on, on top of that money that's sitting there. And so that can make it so that he can, ha- he can pay an even premium for the rest of his life, 3000 bucks a year. And it takes care of the, whenever he dies, no matter when that is a million bucks goes to his family. When did that start? The permanent life insurance concert. Do you have an uh, idea? A couple hundred years ago is really, I think where that, that started kind of coming about and becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. So and, you know, the way we know it now, it's, it's obviously evolved, you know, more to where different types of insurance, if it's whole life, we know how the, the cash value grows based on a guaranteed interest rate and a dividend. If it's a what's called variable universal life, that, that cash value is actually invested in the stock market. So your cash value fluctuates depending on how the stock market is growing or, or not. And uh, so there are different types of that, but, but ultimately that's the idea. That's the reason cash value is even a thing inside of life insurance. Right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about like, you know, not that we're in a global depression or we're headed to one in the, uh, 
you know, right now or something like that. But be helpful if you could provide some insight into how global events, you know, like world wars, economic depressions, pandemics, how have they impact, impacted um, this industry? Yeah, I'll take that one. That's a, a great question. And really one of the major benefits of specifically whole life insurance is the stability, predictability, and the guarantees that it's very well known for. Uh, and so when you're looking at, you know, global events, world wars, depressions, uh, even high interest rate environments, uh, they've all come and gone. And whole life insurance has just continued to plug along as expected. Um, and maybe to, to clarify that, there's two ways that a whole life insurance policy grows. You've got the guarantee, which will be anywhere from 2% to 3.75%, depending on the company. Uh, and then with mutual insurance companies, you have the dividends. So, you know, that doesn't mean that the dividend doesn't fluctuate because it does with those different global events. However, those fluctuations are very small adjustments because of the long-term outlook that an insurance company has. Now, if you take other products like uh, variable universal life insurance policies, those are largely affected by global events and, and mainly because a, a variable universal life or a VUL will fluctuate with the market and can easily go negative. So in a depression or any event that changes the performance of the market, you can see big swings in those kinds of policies. And that's, that's really how the index universal life policy came about or the IUL uh, because IULs use an index in the stock market to track the performance, but there's a floor so that if the market goes negative, the client doesn't experience any of the negative years in the market. Uh, and because you have that floor, the insurance company gives you a cap on your gain. So you, you have the ability to capture the majority of the upside, uh, but it's capped on, on the upside as well. But you do get the protection on the downside. Maybe you guys so, need to back up here because we're throwing around, you know, throwing around a bunch of terms here like variable life and uh, IULs and things like that. Yeah. It's probably a good idea. You know, I, I'm sure a lot, a lot of people who listen to this have been through some of these things too. But for example, um, I think specifically when you're talking about variable, variable life insurance, it's a relatively new thing. That's not something that was around mm -hmm. during the Great Depression and that kind of thing. So um, right. let's back up here. What are these different things? When did they come up and, and sure. uh, that kind of thing? Yeah. So originally the, the kind of what I was describing with the permanent life insurance, it, it was whole life. The whole life's been around a, a long, long time. Uh, Buck, you and I were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and I brought up this, you know, it's a wonderful life, right? You go back right. and watch that. And obviously that was staged in the twenties and thirties and forties. And one of the big kind of key moments in there, he brings up the fact that, Hey, I have this life insurance policy that has some cash value to it. Right. Right. So and that saved him. That saved him. That was, that was the value that he was bringing to the table at that, in that moment. Right. And there are other stories out there like JC Penny, uh, you know, using his, the cash value, of his life insurance policy to start his business. Walt Disney using the cash value of his policy in, in conjunction with, with starting and using his and running, you know, getting Disney going. So, uh, again, when you go back and you see these examples, it's been around a long time. Um, but then what happened was when we talk about guaranteed interest and the dividend, it's, it's boring, right? So Buck, you, you're famous in the last few years of saying, you know, we like boring more and more that the, the more well, we see boring sounds we're, pretty good right about now, right now. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what happened is people got bored with whole life. So they said, well, can we make this cash value grow better? Well, yes, you can tie it to the stock market and you can, uh, but you, it, it, you get all that other volatility that comes with it. And when right? did, when did that really come into it? So VUL was, was like in the seventies. Okay. So when that happened. Okay. So from me, from what I, what, from what I read about this, basically it sounds like you had the depression and you had the old fashioned permanent whole life insurance policies uh, which were like, you know, they were kind of boring, but they were clipping mm -hmm. around paying a, a reasonable uh, profit. Yeah. The depression happens. People are like, oh, my God, I'm go so happy I have this. And um, those people, you know, the rest of their lives basically value life insurance so much they don't want to be in the stock market. And then eventually they die and their children forget everything that ever happened during the depression. Yeah. And the next thing you know, uh, they're seeing people make lots of money in the stock market, 
the insurance industry says, hey, maybe we ought to get in on this so we can at least make these products more attractive to these people. And come, yeah. and then and then the next thing you know, you've got uh, this VUL thing, right? Isn't that, is that is that about right chronologically? Yeah, and, that, and that's also when the four hundred one k came about in the seventies, yeah. etc. Right? So so everything was moving toward the more views in the stock market for sure. Got it. So how did the because this is the you know this is the the variable um, uh, life insurance is the one that you know I mean didn't it's probably not a great idea necessarily, right? I mean, it's not done particularly well. Uh, so, yeah, so talk a little bit about what happened with that. Sure. Okay. So the seventies led into the eighties, high inflation, high interest rates. Uh, again, whole life was already seen as kind of this boring thing. And especially you can imagine interest rates are at, at 18%. The, the policies, they were paying higher than, than what they are now, but if it's paying out 10, percent in the whole life policy, but you could go to the bank, you know, get a CD right. for 16, then, then it's, you know, it's like nothing. So that's where VUL really became more popular is that, well, inflation drives the markets higher, right? Values across the board go higher. So they say, well, let's, let's do more on this. And then, you know, the, the market, it has volatility. Right. So if you're relying on that for your cash value, for your life insurance to, to be able to pay out and it's struggling, right. You, you maybe get overconfident in the nineties and then in the year of the decade of the two thousands, you've, you've underfunded it. Now all of a sudden it's, it's risking going away, you know, cause the, the dot-com bust and then, and then, you know, the real estate thing. So, so just mechanically, this is literally like this money or these cash accounts that are invested in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's, that's the, that's the thing. So you're basically in the, in the stock market. So you're going to live and die with this thing. Right. Yep. No pun intended for insurance, but you're going to live and die with this thing. Then the problem was there that, you know, you get the next crash and a lot of people mm-hmm. die. Uh, a lot, not a lot of people die, but their portfolios die. Yep. Uh, their stock portfolios. And then boom, all of a sudden variable, life insurance does not sound like it's such a good idea anymore because you've lost like, you know, 20, 30% of your portfolio in a crash. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's probably, that's how I think a lot of people think about it. Um, life insurance now. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that seems to have gotten people, um, you know, scared about it over the mm-hmm. years. And I think it's also given ammunition to some of the, um, you know, those, those individuals who are, uh, you know, who, who make money managing people for assets under management, right? Like it's, it's, but then comes along, I think another option. Well, there's a a few things that happen. The the concept of, uh, overfunding, when does that start? When does, so, and first of all, tell us what overfunding is and tell us when that starts. Yeah. So let's go back to my, my previous example of the, the 30 year old that's going to pay 3000 a year for the million dollars policy, right? Um, that's going to build cash value inside of his policy over time. That's and, and kind of take care of it in terms of the way I described. But what if, what if all of a sudden he looks at that and he says, man, that cash value, it's growing, has guaranteed growth and the dividend. And then the IRS also gives it tax benefits so that as it's growing, I don't get a 1099 at the end of each year. When I want, if, if I want to start using that money, I can tap into it without paying taxes on it. This is actually looking really good. What if I want to do more, put more money into it? Well, initially there was no mechanism to do that, right? It's, it's the money that got in there was through premium paying for the life insurance. So how do we get more in there? So then the companies developed what's called paid up additions. It's a rider that you can attach to the policy and it actually does create more insurance when, when that money goes in there. But the way that we use it is we kind of what you're using that the word overfund we, we want to put more money into it to get more of those benefits more more dollars receiving those benefits inside of the policy and so for example you know if we have someone who's putting a hundred thousand a year into their policy 20 of that might be the core insurance part of it which does build cash value but if we can do an additional 80 that goes in there and it's just it's growing it's doing its thing and we're catching the five percent plus return the tax benefits and we can access it and and use it then that that's kind of the whole basis of the wealth form of the banking strategy. Right. Right. 
So, so again, let's, so let's, um, let's stratify that a little bit. Cause we're kind of, uh, we've got a few different things going on. So we went back to this whole life insurance, which is the original idea. And in, in that situation you've got, it's more fixed returns, right? It's, I mean, you yeah. have, for the most part, it's fixed. I mean, you have a fixed return and then you have, um, that then you have uh, distribution, additional distributions, uh, coming in based on, you know, profitability of an insurance company effectively. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that we said, okay, now that now you can overfund that and the value of the overfunding is what at that point? Yeah. The, the value of that is, uh, again, the way that we use it is now you have more money. You're able to take advantage of that, those benefits, the, the guaranteed growth, the dividend, the tax benefits. And, and then and, you can borrow against it. Yes. And the real thing that we've always talked about with wealth formula banking is the, is not that, you know, we're, we're just impressed by the returns that we're getting, although the returns might be looking pretty nice right about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're more interested usually in borrowing and then amplifying other cash flowing investments. Yeah. Basically we compare it to what are your other options to use for your opportunity fund where you set money aside to actually go out and invest with it. Well, if you're using a bank account, uh, a money market account, you put that money there. And when you're ready to invest, you take it money out and you go out and invest it. Right. You're no longer earning anything there while you were there. You might've been earning something, but you had to pay tax on it with this. You set the money into the policy. It grows tax deferred. So you're not taxed on it. When you're using it, you're actually taking a loan against it. So your money stays there and continues to grow creating value in multiple places at the same time. And, and, but you're still investing in all the same things as, as you wanted to in, in the beginning, right? So it's just a much better opportunity fund than the regular savings account. Yeah. So basically you're investing the same money, two places at the same time. And effectively, in addition to, you know, amplifying your returns, now you have protection for your heirs in addition to that. Yes. So that's why I think it's uh well formula bank has been really um, compelling, but then let's talk about how, okay, so let, let's leave that behind now and let's talk about, let's go back to this whole concept, the variable life insurance, the one that was sitting there in the stock market getting destroyed on black Monday or Tuesday, whatever, whatever, Mm -hmm. what was the one in the eighties? I can't remember. Was it Tuesday or I think it was a Tuesday or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So you get pummeled in the eighties and everybody's losing their money variable life insurance sounds like not such a good idea all of a sudden. And then comes along this concept of indexed uh, universal life. And how is that different? Yeah. Indexed universal life is really just, they said, Hey, how can we capture the majority of the upside of the market, but not have to experience the downside of the market? And so all they did was it's a lot of the same indexes that are available for the BUL that you can be invested in. Um, but they put a zero or a 1% floor. So if the, the index goes negative for the year, you, you don't experience the negative year. Uh, and then they put like, uh, it could be anywhere from a 10 to 14% cap. So if the index goes up by 20%, your cap's 14, you're going to capture 14% in the IUL. Yeah. So what's interesting about that, though, is that, again, you've got people say, well, shoot, this market is blazing hot. And I, you know, what if it goes up 20 percent? I'm capped at 14. That's where the leverage comes in. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Talk about that, because effectively, that's what the leverage does is it allows you to capture not only that cap. In this situation, it's almost like that's like your cap rate. And then you've got amplification that gives you higher returns on that. So, so I think you've done some math on this, right? Like, yeah. So now you're talking about what we call wealth accelerator or velocity plus where we, we have an IUL policy out there. You've put some money into it, but in addition to that, we've taken a bank loan for more money going into it. That's creating the leverage in the same way as we leverage, you know, buying real estate or, or leveraging your business, we're just doing the same thing to build this asset, which is inside of the life insurance policy. And uh, because of that leverage, it, it amplifies 
the growth rate. So in other words, if, if the policy itself is going to create roughly a 5% return, someone might say, man, 5%, you know, that's not all that exciting. But if by using the leverage, I can turn that 5% into 11, 12, 13%, and that is tax-free, well, that's the equivalent of like a 18 to 20% right. return on, you know, with a taxable equivalent kind of other investments. So now that starts to look much more attractive. Yeah. And so at that situ- in that situation, that basically starts to sound almost too good to be true, right? Because I yeah. mean, with, you know, when we talk about the banking thing, it's basically, okay, now I'm well formula banking. We're going to invest the same money in two places at the same time. And I'm going to get protection for my family. And this is an extraordinarily um, stable investment. So, hey, that's great. Index universal life sounds like, hey, I can take a good, I can take, you know, essentially if I add a little bit of leverage to this, then I can take returns that are higher than the market is actually returning because of my leverage. Yeah. And my floor is maybe even 1%, right? Like it might, yeah. might not even be zero. It might be 1%. So I'm not going to lose money if the market goes down. If the market goes up because of my leverage, I'm going to get a return higher than what the market actually did. Mm-hmm. Again, sounds a little bit too good to be true, right? So then yeah. it makes you think, well, what the heck? How could they do this? So how can they do this? How can they do this? People <laughs> ask this all the time, right? I think it's a very good question, especially yeah. because you're you're talking about some of the most stable companies in the world, right? have been around for well over 100, 150 years mm-hmm. that have, you know, the optional dividend has never been optional to them. They've always given it out. How are they doing this and still staying afloat? Yeah, it's a great question. It has to do with the, just the, what they are, like these, these insurance companies. So so take the 30-year-old or even take a 60-year-old. If, if I am an insurance company, I'm starting a policy for that person. I'm not expecting them to die for at least for, for a few decades, mm-hmm. right? At least. So I have to plan what I'm going to do with the money that they give me today so that I'm ready to pay it out, ready to pay it out whenever they die. But again, most likely in a long time. So when they go out and invest, they're investing in long-term bonds and notes, you know, 30, 40, 50 year types of things. So uh, it, it kind of levels it out going back to the the boring time in the eighties when interest rates were higher. Well, the, the whole life policy again, right now it sounds amazing, right? They paid out double digits, you know, 10, 11% when you combine the guarantee and the dividend. And, and yet at the time it was like, eh. but then over the last 10 years when interest rates were basically zero and the insurance companies with, with the guarantee plus the dividend were paying out five, six, 7%. Well, that sounded amazing. Right. So it kind of takes these these short term fluctuations of, of the, the economy and and just kind of levels them out over a long period of time. So trying to time the market, trying to, you know, whatever, all the different things that, that you talk about in terms of investing, you don't have to worry about that. Like you just get in and, and IUL ends up doing a similar thing when you spread it out over a long period of time. It creates a pretty predictable growth rate for you. So if I'm not worried about what's happening now in the next two years, I, I can spread that out over 15, 20, 30 years, then it, it, it actually works out really well. So that even when we have times like now, uh, cause we get asked this all the time, right? Right. Especially with the leverage with interest rates going up, doesn't that kind of throw the wealth accelerator out of whack? And the answer is no. The answer actually is the rise in interest rates are going to be good for it in the long term, right? In the short term, it, it pinches it a bit, right? Because the interest rates on the loan went up, but the market's struggling. So I'm not earning on my IUL, et cetera. Um, But the higher interest rates now mean that the insurance company uh, has higher quote unquote budgets when they're going out and buying options on the market in the IUL. So caps are going to go up. They already have been, right? Like uh, the Fed started raising rates in June by, or by July, by August, the, these insurance companies were already starting to increase their caps on the IUL. Like it, it's very, it's responsive to that. And on the whole life side, there's a little bit of a lag, but, but the rise in interest rates pushes the dividend higher because the insurance company is able to get higher returns in their investments that pushes the dividend higher. So what, what are the um, insurance companies like what, I mean, what do their portfolios look like? Because obviously they, you know, 
take pen mutual for example right which yeah. is a lot of what i think you guys use mm-hmm. uh pen mutual has been around since what 18 something 1847 1847 and they've never missed a dividend Ever since 1849, yeah. 18, well, 1848 was a bad year, I guess. I don't know, but <laughs> I guess they were still getting they were the trying pool to together, figure so, themselves yeah. out. But uh, yeah. you, so since 1848, uh, or whatever, uh, they they paid out a dividend. So, what is a, a company like Penn Mutual actually invested in that allows them to have such continuity in times like the depression, the times like I mean. You know, like even hyperinflation, world sure, wars, they went yeah. world wars, there, and, you yeah. know, and the pandemic uh, and all of these things is still rock solid. I mean, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it is, it's more stable than historically than any bank out there. If you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I think that is, that's helpful to make that comparison. And I have a really kind of funny story for you. So here a couple of months ago when uh, Silicon Valley bank was, was falling apart a couple of weeks later, I got a call from one of our clients, uh, you know, large business owner, been around a long time, has had had life insurance policies for since even before we met him, right? For a long, long time, he's been a believer in it. Well, he calls and he says, hey, Rod, if I send a check, so he's, he's funding a, a well-formed banking type of policy, 300000 a year. He says, when does my next uh, anniversary come up so that I can put more money into it? Oh, well, you're, you know, three, four months away. So it's not quite time yet. He says, well, if I send them a check for the 300,000, what are they going to do with it? Like, well, I don't know that, but they deposit it first and then they'll decide where they're going to put it. But when they see they can't put it anywhere, they might, they might, you know, send it back. He's like, as long as they deposit it, I'm good. Cause I don't want it sitting in my account. I feel much better if I can get it to them. Even if it, even if nothing happens with it for four months until my anniversary, then they'll credit it to my account. I'm totally good with that. It's like, okay, we'll see what we can do. Right. So, but here he was, he's thinking, man, I, I again, a business owner keeping large reserves. Um, he, he owns several pawn shops. And so you can imagine cash fluctuates dramatically in his business. So he has to keep large amounts of cash. Well, where does he keep them? He keeps it in his life insurance policies and he accesses it. He takes loans out on a regular basis, sends big chunks back to, to pay down the loans and or to, to continue funding it. My point is, He's looking at the comparison, someone who's, who's been around life insurance, the whole life policies for a long time. And he, he clearly saw, man, this is a much more stable place. And okay, so now back to your question. Why? Why is that? Banks, for the capital that they show on their books, how much liquidity do they have? It's like a 10, 10 to 1 or something now? Or yeah, a, 10%. Changing, yeah. I think is, is what you think of as a general rule. I think for most of them, that's a high point, a high water mark might be 10% liquidity because they're, they're out, you know, fractional reserve banking and take, taking your dollar and then going out and, and loaning it out multiple times because they can, right? And that's how they make their money. Right. With the life insurance company, you put that money, you, you pay your premium. And when they're setting that money aside in their reserves, they're keeping for every dollar that they have promised out at any given time, they have more than a dollar in, in reserves for that. Uh, with, so you mentioned Penn Mutual. I think the last number I heard was like a dollar 13 in reserves for every dollar they have promised out. Okay. So what are they invested in? What's interesting is they're invested in a lot of bonds, right? And recently when I say bonds, people freak out and they say, oh no, that's what, that's what, you know, pushed Silicon Valley bank into. Well, they probably have ones. Kind of stuff. Well, they probably have them from way back when they were, you know, when they were high, when the bonds they were, do, yeah. yeah, they do have that, and they have a lot of short term stuff as well. Because recently, it makes more sense to put it into a two year or a five year bond instead of going out and getting a thirty year for less. Um, but th- the point is, is that number one, there's no run on an insurance company, right? right? Right, right. And and the reason for that is it's it's not that people couldn't like everybody who has a policy with them, everybody who has cash value could say no. S- send me, even if it was a loan, like, Hey, I want to take out my max loan, send me all my money. Um, but in reality, uh, I heard recently uh, an executive from one of these companies saying that they have no more than 7% of the policies on their books, these whole life policies that have any loan against them. So the fact is the majority of people who have money in these policies are, are leaving it there to, to just, you know, do its thing, not, not using it the way we use it right in the, in the wealth form of the banking. So, there's no, there's no such thing or, or, you know, historically has not been anything like a run on a, on a life insurance company, like you get a run on a bank. And so you put those things together and it's just, 
like if, if I had to say, what are the last companies standing in the United States? If, you know, if, if just everything goes wrong and I think it's life insurance companies. Yeah. I, yeah. So again, I, 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 it's sometimes when I, you know, whenever we talk about this, I'm like, gosh, it's just, it just seems like, it just seems like too good to be true. Right. But it's not like we've got companies that are fly by the night companies sitting here. We're talking about a hundred, you know, 170 year old. I don't know. I have to do do the math. Yeah. Uh, Companies that are, that are doing this kind of thing. So let me ask you this. So, so what kind of, what are some of the most common, if you want to call misconceptions or if you want to call them misinformation, because there's a lot of, of misinformation about insurance. That's one of the things that I realized early on, right? Like when I came Mm -hmm. out of residency and I remember some guy telling me, well, whatever you do, you know, don't, don't, don't buy permanent life insurance. It's dumb, you know, buy term and invest the the rest. And, you know, he seemed to know what he was talking about, but then the next thing you know, I, you know, I was sort of making some money and I was in these various groups with a bunch of wealthy business owners and they were, a lot of them were doing various types of premium finance. And I was like, these guys aren't dumb. These guys know what they're doing. And meanwhile, this, this doctor that was like one year out of residency in front of me, uh, was telling me, giving me all this advice, like he knew everything. So what's the, I guess, what's the, uh, what's the discord there? What's the, what's the confusion? Well, I think a lot of it is what people are used to seeing when people talk to them about whole life or I index universal life policies. Uh, they're used to seeing policies that seem to have an extremely high cost and it's because they're, they're looking at these policies purely as a death benefit or the person showing them the policy, whether it's a financial advisor, insurance agent, whoever it may be, they're selling them the policy as a death benefit play. And that's just not the conversation that we have around wealth formula banking or the wealth accelerator. And so it has to do with the structure of the policy. Those policies are structured purely to maximize the death benefit whereas the policies that the wealthy use are structured to maximize the cash value that you can utilize for investing. You can utilize it with leverage for tax-free income. And I think that's the, the biggest discord there is people are used to seeing one thing and seeing high cost and just a death benefit at the end of life instead of this very efficient policy. It still has cost, but those costs are minimized and you can utilize it while you're living. One of the, uh, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, I recently did, I recently converted a wealth formula banking policy uh, to a wealth accelerator policy. And I did that in part because what I realized was that I deploy capital so quickly. Like, I, you know, the, the, the idea of taking loans from the banking policy, it just wasn't really happening because like I was just putting money in and then I would like, you know, I, as soon as I got money in my pocket, I would just deploy it. Right. Um, and then I thought to myself, you know, I don't really have any exposure to this stock market. I just don't, I mean, you know, it's, it's like, and by the way, I don't recommend that. It's not like I'm saying that, you know, you have to be all alternatives. I just was. But I think it's smart to have exposure in various areas, you know, especially when the market's kind of been beat up and all that. Um, to have some exposure, especially if you can, as we've talked about here, take the upside and actually take more than the upside, mm-hmm. not lose money. And so decided to move forward with this wealth accelerator. So do you want to talk about... how? I'm happy for you to just share what, what we did and yeah. kind of explain what, you know, what that does, how that works, Rod. Yeah. So, uh, your, your whole life policy, that was the wealth form of the banking policy. Uh, you've been funding it, max funding it, uh, getting that money in there. And then, like you said, you weren't tapping into it the way that you had planned to, or, or even that you had previously done, you know, when, when you first got excited about the strategy and, and were using it. And, I mean, I, I think in some ways that's, that's, you're a little bit unique in that sense, because as, you know, as a general partner or as, you know, in, in, in the ways that you participate in a lot of these investments, uh, your return or your like capital uh, outlay is, is different than maybe it was before that. Um, and 
So you were saying, okay, well, what what can we do with this, right? How can we make more of this instead of, again, letting it sit there and, and grow 5%, not the worst thing in the world. It's, it's liquid. You, you can to access it if you need to, but how can we do more with this? And, and by the way, this are, is, this is something I think like a lot of people, I mean, just this is not taking away anything from Wealth Formula Bank because I know a lot of people right. who are using it very efficiently, but there's also a number of people like me who probably, you know, kind of have it there and they're overfunding and they had intended to do something with it, mm-hmm. but then they really haven't. So this is another option for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, we're in a weird kind of uh, place because a lot of people who were, who, who viewed wealth form in the banking, the way you described it, where it's like, man, I just deploy my money so fast. Well, what are they doing right now? Nobody's deploying right? they, wish they had more opportunities to put the money into, but they don't. So it's actually a really good opportunity. If you saw value in wealth form the banking, but weren't participating in previously because of that, now's a great time to, to be capitalizing, so to speak, your, your policy. So that in a, six months or a year or two, when, when things start breaking loose, the money is, is there and available. It's, it's ready to go and use. Um, but, but it's also been working for you in the meantime. Yeah, okay? that's so right. A little aside, but, but I think that's an important point that we've been seeing with people over the last, you know, six, eight months. Yeah. And by the way, again, this is a, I think the wealth accelerator is something to seriously think about if you are sitting on cash and you're like, what am I going to do with this? There's nothing really good right now. And you know, there, I think there will be some good stuff coming up here pretty soon, but I mean, if you're sitting on a lot of money and you don't want lazy money sitting around, you know, but tell, tell us a little bit about Wealth yeah, Accelerator yep. and how that so works. So that's the flip side is we take this cash that you have sitting in that policy and now we're putting it to work. Again, it's going to keep earning the 5%, but instead of you continuing to put the uh, the annual contribution into it, instead we're financing that through the bank. So the money is continuing to be max funded into the policy the way it was originally intended. The cash value is going to grow the way it was originally built to do with the 5% return. But now because you're using leverage to get that money in, in the long term, you're going to not have a 5% tax-free return. You're going to end up with something much larger than that, right? And in addition to that, you have the money that you were planning to put into it. So instead, we're going to start stacking policies. In your case, we have this large amount of convertible term insurance. And then so instead of you continuing to put your money into that original policy, we'll start stacking additional whole life and IUL policies on top of that to just make that bucket bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, the more money that you will be uh, taking as loans to let as leverage to continue building that bucket. So that in the future, when it either turns into a source of tax-free income in retirement, or as more likely in your case, as you anticipate, uh, it being an estate planning play, your your girls will get a lot more death benefit, like multiple times more death benefit out of this by you having used the leverage than it would be if it was just your regular contributions having gone in. So now, right now, like people hear leverage and they're like, oh, sh- I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. We got interest yeah. rates going up. Uh, what would, so how, how is leverage work here and how safe is it to use in, in the context of these policies? Yeah. So we use the term conservative leverage because again, we, we, we want to use it as a tool, but we don't want to go crazy and, and go overboard with it. Right. So in this case with wealth accelerator, specifically the asset, the life insurance policy that we're building, you put the money in first to get us jump started. And then now as we're adding more money to the policy through that leverage, you have, a, you still are going to, it, it continues building the cash value of the policy. You're going to always have more in your cash value than the loan balance that we're creating. Right. So that's the first point. I think this is really critical to realize. Uh, Cause I'm also often asked, well, why do the banks like this if they don't like a lot of other things right now? And the answer is because it's a cash asset, cash equivalent asset that is, uh, very predictable in the way that it grows. The same reason you you talked about the, that you like it, that re, the banks like it as as collateral for a loan as well, right? So, uh, so all of those principles work for you in in kind of building this this additional benefit, but it's doing it in a way that is um, it's very calculated. It's very again conservative, so that we don't have to worry about. And and I'll give you an example. 
Um, cause people say, well, what banks are you using right now for this? And interestingly, we're actually not using banks at this moment. We're actually using the insurance companies and why, because when we use, if we were to use the banks right now, we would be paying seven and a half, eight percent interest, right? Whereas if I'm on the whole life side, it's a 5.7% interest rate on the IUL side, it's a 5% interest rate. So, uh, we have because of the instrument itself, the cash value line of credit, it just gives us a lot more fluidity to be in the right place as it relates to how we're using the debt. So, uh, and like I mentioned earlier, the, the rise in interest rates is going to mean that the policies will produce more growth moving forward than they would if interest rates hadn't go up. I, I like the fact that the interest rates went up. Like, I know it gets creating havoc in a lot of other places, but it's really specifically to life insurance. I think of it as like the an interest rate reset. When interest rates have, were low and had been low for so long, it just makes it tough for the insurance companies to to think that they can keep paying a higher a, a you know reasonable dividend or and or with the the IUL to have reasonable caps. But with interest rates going up, that helps puts us to a healthier place as it relates to that. And the interest rates on the loan side are not going to stay high. If you go back to the eighties, they went really high, eighteen twenty percent at their highest in like the 1981. But by 1985, 86, they had dropped to five, six percent again. But the effect of having had the high interest rates and the insurance companies going out and buying 30-year bonds at those 18% rates means that the insurance policies were bolstered for the next, you know, decades. So so when we did mine, speak to the mechanics of that, because you again yeah. we started with a whole life policy. So presume you can't you can't switch, can you? Can you yeah, it's not that you can't, but it wouldn't be smart at this stage to do that. Right. You, in other words, uh, the costs are higher in the in year one and two of the policies. You're already past that point. We don't want to go back and start over with that and the cost side. So keeping the whole life that you have as your starting point, and then when we start stacking the policies, then we'll go heavier on the okay. IUL first. So, so what we do there, again, mechanically, I want to make sure we understand, everybody kind of gets an idea how this works. We, you say we take the loan. So, so the nice thing about Wealth Accelerator 2 is like you're not, you don't have to do something every year. It's a, in effect, it's like a one-time deal. You can, you can do it every year if you want, mm-hmm. but you're not required to do that. Because I think that's one of the things Correct. that's kind of nice about it is you're not putting yourself on the hook for, I don't know, 100 grand a year for five years. And then all of a sudden you have a bad year and you're like, oh, shoot, there goes that plan. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's one thing. So then the second, so you put the money in the first year. Is there loan coming in for the first year at all? No, not on the wealth accelerator. So the second year, where's, you're not putting any money in. Where's the loan coming from? The insurance company? Uh, right now, yes, the insurance company. Yeah. And traditionally we'll use a bank. Like there'll, there'll come a time where we'll go back to using banks. But So you're, so you're, but in that case, your, your loan that you, you're taking has to be, you know, at least a tiny little bit below the amount of, uh, of return you're getting in order to amplify that return. Yeah. And it's both. So for example, in that year one, you mentioned a hundred thousand, let's say you put the hundred thousand in now in the cash value of the policies, you have 75,000. Okay. I'm just using a really round number. So 75,000 is there when that net in year two, when that next hundred thousand goes in, it's going to increase the cash value by about 85, 88,000. Right. So in other words, you now have a hundred thousand dollar loan, but you also have 155, 160,000 sitting in the cash value. And then getting back to your point, the interest that you end up accruing on that loan over time, you'll on average, you'll earn more in the policies as far as a, a rate, like the interest rate that you're earning compared to the interest rate you're accruing on the loan. So not only is there a difference in the values, but there's a difference in the rate. We call it the spread so that uh, we we end up outpacing the growth in our cash value compared to what we're accruing in interest on the loans. Got it. Um, okay. So now let's start. You can also do that policy, that same type of thing with the IUL. You started if you if you have an IUL, you can do that. By the way, you can't convert uh, a leveraged IUL that you already have into this, right? 
or an IUL in general? Well, you you could again in the similar way that we've. I, th- I think of it as like repurposing your, your wealth forming the banking policy was being intended to be used for investing and, and that kind of thing. When you realized, Hey, maybe, maybe I want to do something different with this. We took the exact same policy, exact same structure. We didn't change anything on the policy itself. We just repurposed it and moved it over into the category now of wealth accelerator because we're now financing the premiums going in. And then we add to it with some IUL with some other things to, to, really build it into what you want it to be in the future. Well, anyway, we could go on and on forever on this. Um, you know, you can, um, obviously we just, you know, we could, you can do the same thing, um, with wealth accelerator. Um, you can do that with the, uh, IUL and that's like, I think in some ways it's probably a much, it's a much more conservative option than traditional premium finance, uh, yes. premium finance, because you don't have any recourse on that debt either. Right. Yeah. You're always a hundred percent collateralized by the cash value. Like I said, right. by design, your cash value is always a, a larger number than what your loan balance is. So anyway, that, that, um, anyway, good stuff. Um, finally, I guess, you know, we've talked a little bit about the mechanics of some of these policies and also the history, you know, I guess the, we can just finish with this. I mean, what, what lessons can we learn from the history of permanent life insurance and how, how to use them, how to, how to think about them in the larger context, because they've gone through periods when they have been, you know, a lifesaver. They've gone through periods when people just thought, Oh, boring, can't make any money. So how do you, how do you contextualize that? Yeah, I think that, you know, insurance companies that we use have been around for 150 plus years. So, you know, we've covered that we've covered that they've gone through, different global crises uh, and they've been able to navigate those very well uh, and consistently continue to pay dividends to policyholders, which means they're profitable every single year. So, you know, one, one thing that I take away from that is that it may not be uh, the most exciting thing to have, but it's definitely going to be here for the long term. It's conservative leverage. It's uh, the ability to use your money in two different places at once and the underlying asset is, you know, it's something that you can count on. And, right. and maybe just to build on that, it's, it's as Bren talked about earlier, it's building it in the right way. Like it's, it's taking the tool of life insurance and setting it up correctly. Like in this case, to minimize costs, maximize the growth of the cash value, uh, to use whole life where it makes sense. Like in the wealth from the banking, that's we're using whole life, right? Can you use IUL? Yes, you can. We choose I we choose whole life because of just the the really uh, predictable growth that we get inside of it. You don't have to worry about what's happening in the market at all because there's no correlation to the market with it. Whereas with the wealth accelerator velocity plus, we use IUL. Well, sorry, we actually use a combination of both whole life and IUL because we want to take advantage of the the strengths that they bring to the table. Without again, in the, in the case of IUL, without you know having issues with some of the weaknesses, right? they balance each other out in that sense. So that when you talk about, you know, what lessons do we learn? Well, we learn that when set up in the right way and used in as, as a tool to, to, you know, grow wealth, they can actually be very, very effective at doing that. Thanks guys. I appreciate you being on uh, wealth formula podcast again. Thanks again, guys, uh, uh, Brennan and Rod for being on wealth formula podcast. Um, you know, I think this is something that people need to be thinking about right now or should consider, especially if you're worried about the way things are going. Um, this, again, is been has been a savior uh, for people in the past. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things, you know, sometimes boring is good. And uh, boring is, is kind of like what we're uh, will sometimes save you on a, on a rainy day. So if you're interested in these kinds of things and want to learn more, uh, go to wealthformulabanking.com. There's a few webinars there where you can dig down deeper. Uh, and then ultimately, if you're interested, uh, you know, contact Rod and Brennan or Christian through that uh, just by sending in a uh, little uh, filling out a form. Again, guys, thanks again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast and I'd uh, love to have you on again soon. Thanks, Buck. Thanks, Buck. Be right back. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And again, this is just something to consider. I think permanent life insurance is something I believe in and probably will be doing a little bit more of even as we, as I wait for, you know, some of the blood in the street to come and deploy capital. But, uh, you know, this is something that I think that uh, if, you, if you think about what we discussed in this podcast, in many ways, you can just look at it and say, well, why wouldn't I do that? I mean, I mean, that's the thing is when you drill down on this stuff and you talk to Rod, talk to Christian or Brennan about it, some of these policies just make you wonder why you, you know, what the downside really would be. But decide for yourself. Think about it. I just wanted to put it on your radar. Uh, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Make an appointment with those guys. Let them, you know, ask all the questions you want. It's out there. something to consider. But that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.